You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we are discussing A History of Zimbabwe by Professor Alois Mlambo. There's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to try to pronounce correctly here, and I'm going to fail a lot, but that's okay. Uh... This is going to be somewhat of a strange podcast because I came to this book in an interesting way. And the purpose of this podcast is just, as I said at the top, to read books by black authors and talk about them casually, not as like an academic thing or as a comprehensive literary criticism of the book, if it's literary or whatever. It's not a review. It's just casually talking about things that I find interesting. The problem here is that this book is called A History of Zimbabwe, maybe should even be called A Concise History of Zimbabwe. It's only 300 pages, so naturally there's going to be a lot of history to talk about, and hopefully I don't skip over too much of it, which is going to be absolutely impossible. Let me just back up. It's not hopefully I don't skip over too much of it. The parts that I do skip over, hopefully you can forgive me, because there's just going to be too much history. So let's hop into how I came to the book in the first place, and you'll see why there's so many different crossroads here for how to discuss this book. So I was doing some data science practice and I was given a data set with six countries in it. One of them happened to be Zimbabwe and I was charting some things and noticed that Zimbabwe had the largest gain in life expectancy over the period that I was looking at. I think it was about 50 years. And I became curious and I started to search for reasons why in the data, exhausted that. And then I went to Wikipedia and there was an article, it had a link to an article in the New Zimbabwe newspaper, now defunct. And it pointed, the newspaper article did, written by a white Zimbabwean, was very critical of Robert Mugabe. Uh, Not that black people aren't also critical of him or that Zimbabweans, black Zimbabweans aren't critical of him. But, you know, I took it with a grain of salt. And I knew of Mugabe. I knew who he was. I knew he was, if we're being polite, a polarizing figure. The article claimed that he was basically solely responsible for this dip in life expectancy, as well as a lot of other things. And no one is saying that Robert Mugabe was an angel. But what didn't make sense was, according to the data, he had presided over the country while it lost or slipped in life expectancy. But he also presided over it while it gained in life expectancy. And he didn't, you know, as far as I know, change. In fact, the end of his tenure as president, dictator, whatever, was the most controversial time when they were giving, or when they were uh, re- uh, distributing the land so I thought that was odd so that led me to look for a book on Zimbabwe I wanted to read more I wanted to do more data science but first I want to just read to get context and then find some more data to to explore but before we get to the book uh, that's why this is kind of an odd thing to talk about because what I usually do on these podcasts is just talk about the book and that's what I want to do here But I'll probably occasionally have to mention, you know, like I'm mentioning now, why I read the book in the first place and stuff. So there's there's the context. So anyway, I searched around and I found a book, A History of Zimbabwe, by 
a black African professor who, uh, again, Professor uh, Alois Nlambo, uh, who teaches at the University of Pretoria. And I was excited about this because I always want to find texts written by Africans about Africans. When I read Julius Nairi's Ujama, I wanted to read a book about Julius Nairi. And unfortunately, the only one I could find was a concise little volume of his life uh, written by a non-African author. So it, I was very excited to read not only a black author, but an African author writing about Zimbabwe. So that's what this book is. And okay, I read the first four chapters this week, uh, which covers a period of time from basically, you know, the beginning of time until 1953. So when I say we're going to skip over a lot of history, I mean we're going to skip over a lot of history. But the first four chapters were Zimbabwe in historical perspective. And this is really a short introduction. It's eight pages or so. Then we get the early states from 900 to 1900. And this is the part that I found the most interesting. Like it was the biggest blind spot I had. And the part that I'm most interested in general uh, when I'm learning about Africa is basically like pre-European colonization Africa. Even if there was contact with Europe during that time, colonization in earnest hadn't started yet. There was a there was a whole conference that they had where they started divvying up Africa like crazy. Please note, no Africans were invited. Uh, Professor Nlambo mentions that in the book. But okay, so that's the second chapter, early states from 900 to 1900. Then the British conquest state, and this part I will gloss over pretty quickly in this podcast. It This is just about, really, it's the period from like 1890 to 1900. So it's kind of included in the last chapter but it goes into more detail specifically about how Cecil Rhodes, you know, legally wrested uh, Zimbabwe, which was not Zimbabwe at the time, from the hands of the African leaders, uh, the uh, Shona leaders and the Ndebele. It's not a, there's no way that's how you pronounce that. But yeah. Okay. And then the fourth chapter is the colonial, colonial economy and society until 1953. Also very interesting chapter. So we're going to focus mainly on chapters two and four. That is the early states and then the fourth chapter, which talks about, you know, what led to the movement for for independence and all the nationalist movements in Zimbabwe. And I want to talk about these things as just like points of interest. So the way I'm going to talk about the second chapter is I'm first going to mention the three or four things I knew about Zimbabwe. And then I'm going to go through the second chapter and talk about four or five things that I learned that I just didn't know. And we will, yeah, we'll just skip over the first chapter altogether. If you don't know, Zimbabwe is a country in Southern Africa. It borders South Africa. It was founded by, the modern state was founded by Cecil Rhodes and was originally called Rhodesia. And then it became known as Zimbabwe. And we'll get into the reasons why. Okay. But here's what I knew about it before reading this book. Just just briefly. I knew it was a colony of Britain. I knew Mugabe was a controversial president slash dictator of the country for decades. I knew about the land uh, redistribution. And I think that's more or less it. You know, there's a few facts here or there that I probably knew or whatever. But it's not like I knew a ton. And... Yeah, if you, you know, it's kind of like what you know about any country. If you just throw a random country out there, say, I don't know, Macedonia, can you name five facts about it? That's basically where I was at with Zimbabwe. It wasn't a country that I was focused on. I took modern African history 
at university one semester, how much you're going to learn this semester about an entire continent. And we were, we were told to choose one country and I chose Angola. So if you ask me to name five things about Angola right now, as it's been 15 years since I took that course, I would have trouble with that. It's hard to know a lot about, you know, all the different countries in the world or just even all the different countries in Africa or even just all the different countries in one region of Africa. But okay, so those are the things I more or less knew about Zimbabwe. Here's what I'd learned from Professor Mlambo's book. The first thing is, Zimbabwe is named after the Great Zimbabwe Monuments, which were built between the 13th and 16th century AD. They are the second largest man-made structures from Africa's remote past next only to the pyramids of Egypt. Had no idea these things existed. Had no idea that's why Zimbabwe was called what it's called. Uh, I knew of Rhodesia, the name, and I knew it got switched to Zimbabwe, but I didn't know that I would have just assumed that Zimbabwe was another term that the British put on the Zimbabwe people, which we'll get to that in just a second. But also, okay, so these these largest man-made structures, of course, uh, the not the first Europeans who came in contact with uh, with the people of Zimbabwe, what's now known as Zimbabwe, but uh, many people tried to say like, oh well, that must have been built by, um, you know, an earlier contact with Europeans or that must have, uh, that must have been the result of aliens or something. They, they couldn't and wouldn't give credit to the idea that Africans had built these structures, you know, and that's, that's something you see around the world. For instance, the terracotta soldiers in, in China, the same thing has been said about that craftsmanship there. The, I can't remember the name of the the artifact that was found in it's it's in um half of the yellow sun that that novel and it is in Biafra Nigeria those those artifacts they found where they were like oh that that couldn't have been african craftsmanship so this was a similar thing like oh there's no way they built these structures so um didn't know didn't know anything about that i didn't know about the ancient kingdoms of of zimbabwe and um there's a very useful timeline in here that uh, Professor Mambo provides. And so from 900, or no, excuse me, 850 AD to after 1100 AD, there was a, a peoples who followed a tradition known as Leopard Kapji, and this is in southwestern Zimbabwe. Then from around 1100 to 1280, the rise and decline of the Mampungube state on the Limpopo River in southern Zimbabwe. And then from 1280, so from the 13th century to the 16th century, we have the Great Zimbabwe State, where those monuments we were just talking about, where those are built. And it rises and declines over that period. And then after that, there are several states in succession, Mutapa, Torwa, and Razvi. So, you know, that's... Uh, I've never heard of any of those. And the San people were the earliest people, S-A-N, San people were the earliest people to inhabit Zimb uh, the region of Zimbabwe or to be in Zimbabwe. He also talks about the Bantu expansion, covers all of that. Uh, I knew about the Bantu expansion, so that's the one thing I didn't know about. But um, the San people I didn't know about. And then the another interesting thing was that Professor Mambo points out that the term Shona, which is, so the two major groups that are discussed before 
So we have all of those kingdoms, right? And then leading up to the British conquest, there's they get lumped in by, obviously, the Europeans as everybody who's Shona is over here, which comprises all kinds of different tribes and different languages and dialects. But anybody who's Shona, okay, you people are all Shona. Well, that name itself is not even the name. Like that's not even the correct name for what that would be. And the correct name is lost to time. But Mlambo uh, Professor Mlambo points out that even that name, which you would think would be more accurate than say Rhodesia, uh, is also inaccurate. And oh, so that was one people. The other people were the uh, the name that I've already horribly mispronounced, but we're going to just have to give it another go. That is the Indebele, Indebele people. Let's go with that pronunciation. That's a little bit better. So those are the two groups of people living in, I mean, it's getting, there's not two groups of people, but just for sake of argument, those are the two groups of people, for sake of this podcast, those are two groups of people living in Zimbabwe at the time of the British conquest. But okay, so I didn't know about any of those peoples, the sand people, the original people, any of the kingdoms, the great Zimbabwe kingdom, and then the eventual Shona and Ndebele people who moved in much later. They were not originally there. All right. The other thing I learned about was trade that uh, took place with the Swahili coast reached all the way to Zimbabwe. Now, I knew about the trade from the Swahili coast because Cedric Robinson wrote about it and other scholars have talked about it. And it's also an interesting point to bring up when talking about the creation of the black uh, race or the idea of the Negro. The fact that people didn't want to talk about contact they'd already had with Africa. It was in the age of discovery, Africa was talked about as if it was this new, you know, untapped place full of savages and uh, a scary new world and people they had never talked to when they'd been trading with them for centuries. So yeah. Um, I, I, Professor Mlambo puts it in the book for much of the same reason to point out that there were already there was already contact with Europeans and then to also like show the contrast between that contact and what would later come. He also puts it in to point out that these were states. When you engage in trade, you are a state. These weren't people who were, as it's often portrayed, uh, sitting in, you know, or not even sitting in a grass hut. No, no shelter, just kind of destitute, no food, no way to take care of themselves, unorganized, uh, stabbing random animals and, and eating them like after roasting over a fire. These were organized states. They had political systems or societal systems or hierarchies or whatever. And they traded. They had trade and they had goods as, from as far away as China and Persia in their settlements because they engaged in trade. Not that you need those things to justify being a people, but it's the fact that the British used the absence of these things, the supposed absence of these things, the idea that the Zimbabwean people, the people who were living in Zimbabwe, they weren't yet the Zimbabwean people, they didn't have a national identity, but that somehow these people weren't, you know, actually a nation state and because of, or a nation or a state or anything. And because of their lack of organization, it made sense to just go in and take them over. It's because he's trying to refute that thought process that he brings these things up. Not as like, oh, these things are necessary for you to not come in and conquer them. That's not his point. But anyway, 
uh, one more note on exactly what the British thought of Zimbabwe or Africa in general. There's this, well, there's two quotes from Professor Hugh Trevor Roper, an Oxford professor. And these quotes were not made in 1900. They were not made in 1930. They were not made in 1920. They were made in 1960 and 1969, respectively. Here's the first quote. Perhaps in the future, there will be some African history to teach. But at present, there is none. There is only the history of Europeans in Africa. The rest is largely darkness. And darkness is not a subject of history. So you can see there. By excluding the African as a person who had states, who had trade, who did things, by excluding them entirely, it's easy to say, well, when we showed up, we created history. Before we showed up, there was nothing. We brought civilization, meaning we brought the African into being. The second quote, the history of the world for the past five centuries, and I want you to remember, this is 1969, and I believe this quote was made on the BBC. The history of the world for the past five centuries, insofar as it has significance, has been European history. It follows that the study of history is and must be Eurocentric. For we can ill afford to amuse ourselves with the unrewarding gyrations of barbarous tribes in picturesque but irrelevant corners of the globe. Thus you can see from a quote like this why Professor Mlambo strives to point out that they were not barbarous tribes. Even if they had been barbarous tribes, this quote would still be inaccurate. But you understand what he's up against here. Okay, so... uh, didn't know any of those things. I mean, I guess I knew about the British being super racist, but <laughs> I didn't think I, I didn't think it carried into 1969 with an Oxford professor, you know, but I guess I still have too much respect for the, uh, for the old institutions. All right. The couple more things that I didn't know that I learned from chapter two and when a Muntapa was the master pillager and the successor of great Zimbabwe, he, he won that title from from uh, establishing the state after the Great Zimbabwe. The reason I bring them up is like, I don't know that many names of um, of African kings. We I know Shaka Zulu, Shaka, uh, who we'll get to in just a moment. And I know the richest man in Africa, the guy who was the Mali Empire, um, Manta Musa. So like this, but this, and when Mutapa gives me a chance to look him up and read about another African king, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, and then I didn't know how much Shaka, so getting to Shaka, I didn't know how much Shaka caused reverberations throughout the region. So earlier I was talking about those Ndebele people who constituted the other part of the of the people living in the Zimbabwe region. The reason they were there is because of Boer migration and uh, Zulu migration. There's actually a better name for it. It's Mfekane, which was the... Um, the movements of the Zulu people, partially due to wars that they were waging, partially due to uh, changing dynamics in South Africa with with the uh, the colonizers. So uh, I, I didn't realize, you know, I saw Shaka Zulu with my father when I was like a kid. I, I didn't realize how much he really changed that region. So um, I'll have to, you know, read more on Shaka Zulu too. And the last thing I didn't know, and this is in the conclusion of chapter two, and I really have always wondered about things like this, and I like how Professor Malambo tied it together. He said, uh, Zimbabwe could have come a country just as, you know, 
the rise and fall of empires happened in Europe and Germany was emerging as a country in the 19th century uh, into the 20th century. Um, the same thing could have happened in Zimbabwe with the rise and fall of empires. And so I really just liked him tying that all together and the con the, uh, the comparison with Germany. I thought that was very apt and good. So there you go. There's my chapter two things I didn't learn. Okay. Or things I didn't know. Uh, so that was a thousand years of history, you know, and that's, that's a lot. There's a lot in there. So mainly I just wanted to touch on those things, which I will be like reading more about. That's really the point. And of course, each book you read that's any good read leads to five or six more books and you eventually buy enough books to, uh, to be buried in when you, uh, enter your pyramid at the end of your life. All right. Colonization. This was chapter three. Really just going to do two things here. Two things that stuck in my craw. The first was the Rudd Concession. So the Rudd Concession, signed in 1889, gave Cecil John Rhodes the legal basis to secure a charter from British government for his newly established British, British South Africa company to occupy Zimbabwe. The company was granted rights to occupy and administer land, raise its own police force, and establish settlements within its own boundaries he was able to get the Rudd concession because he tricked uh, the ruler of Ama Ndebele, uh, Lobangula, into signing it. And not only did he trick him, he also made it so that, like, the you know, um, Lobangula, like, protested and sent a message to the queen. And that was, of course, delayed and all of this stuff happened. So the reason it stuck in my craw is because it's so dumb. It's so, like dumb and British to like have a legal precedent for why you can go in and invade a country when that's just not going to be legal. Like by your own laws, by your own laws in your country, it says it's legal for me to invade this country. That's not my country. How the hell does that make any sense? Of course it doesn't. Uh, so it just seemed very dumb and then, and like circular logic and like, yeah, I get it. It was a hundred years ago, which not that long ago, but sure. But, um, the circular logic of that, is seems like something that somebody should have been able to point out at the time, particularly since mathematics were really advancing <laughs> at quite the rate. I mean, I don't know if we were quite at a Godel and uh, the idea of all closed systems, you know, being like imperfect or something, but I think we were at the point, yeah, I guess like Bertrand Russell and whatnot, they were trying to prove that everything could be like um, rigor rigorously proved. So maybe the logic was still in flux. Maybe the concept of using logic to say like, hey, using our laws to uh, justify what we're doing in a country with different laws and customs doesn't make any sense, but apparently not. Okay, so that happened. And then after that, there were several uprisings that were squashed. And But the, the important part here, and this is the other fact that stuck out, is that these uprisings... Uh, and these were uprisings by the Ndebele. So just real quick, what the colonizers eventually tried to say was that they were rescuing the Shona from the warlike Ndebele people who were kind of an offshoot of the Zulu people. What the, the person who moved the Ndebele people into Zimbabwe was a like a lieutenant of Shaka Zulus and then he had a falling out and then he's like, all right, I'm getting out of here before, before Shaka, uh, to use my father's phrase, stomps a mud hole in me. And, uh, he, he fled 
And so they were also warlike and stuff. And they showed up and, and they were praying on the Shona. And then the white man came in and rescued the Shona. So anyway, that's the company line. And Professor Mlambo points out that that's, of course, nonsense. Uh, but anyway, they were they were squashed in the rebellion. But that didn't, or the uprisings, there were more than one. But that didn't... Uh, that didn't last, obviously, and it, and it set the groundwork for what in 50 years would become the independence movement, which we'll get to in, in next week's podcast. But anyway, okay, there you go. A thousand years of history in 20 minutes. And, and, and to be clear, that's also the book is only 300 pages long. So that's probably about 100, no, not even, 96 pages of the book. It goes very quickly. Um, but okay, and then so from 1900 to 1953 is the next chapter. And this is the fourth chapter. And this is where we get into the period of which most people are familiar with because it's the period that's happened in the last 100 years. It has the most facts and figures in the entire book. It has all of the tables in the book except for one. And so I did a second uh, blog post about this. So the first, the first data science thing that I did, I wrote about what I had found with life expectancy. And then I wanted to read this book. And then I actually ended up reading a book that Professor Mambo referenced in this book called The Grass is Singing by Doris Lessing. And also I happened to have bought Agatha Christie's The Man in the Brown Suit at the same time. So I read that too. And I kind of wrote a blog post combining those opinions, you know, like the literary opinions at the time with the facts and figures that Professor Professor Mambo presents in chapter four. And, um, So if you want to see some of the charts and tables and graphs and stuff, you can just click the show notes. They're in there. But so, um, yeah, the the second, or excuse me, the fourth chapter, what it really focuses on is what it was like to be under British colonial rule. And uh, I think that the main focus of this chapter, I mean, it goes in a bunch of different places. It talks about many different things uh, kind of doesn't give a lot of attention to the to women under colonial rule colonial rule that comes up later in the chapter and because this podcast is running long is going to run long i want to talk about the main thing and the main thing is land so here are three quotes from this chapter this is from the zanu chairman herbert chitepo he says i could go into the whole theories of discrimination and legislation and residency in economic opportunities, in education, I could go into that. But I will, I will restrict myself to the question of land because I think this is very basic. To us, the essence of exploitation, the essence of white domination, is domination over land. That is the real issue. Okay. Then later, uh, the problem, this is no longer Her- Herbert Chitepo, this is just later in the book, like two pages later. The problem of the African... The cause being the story of the people's agony is landlessness. Okay. And then later, the war of liberation in Zimbabwe was fought mainly over the land issue. So that's the deal. That's what we're getting at. That's the point of this chapter in chapter four. Now, again, there are other things talked about about how it was to be under British colonial rule. But that is the reason this chapter is written. It sets the groundwork for chapter five, which we'll talk about the burgeoning or fledgling or beginning uh, liberation movement from 53 to 63. So the land is the focus. And so how was the land allocation? So there was a land allocation 
under the 1930 Land Apportionment Act. That's So we've jumped 30 years. Between 1900 and 1930, it was less codified. In the book, Professor Mlambo calls this 1930 Land uh, Apportionment Act the Magna Carta of Racial Segregation on Land in Zimbabwe. Segregation had always been present, but now it was formalized, and it gave twice as much land to Europeans as to Africans. So the European area was 51% of all the land, and the native reserves were 22%, and then unassigned area were 18.5%, and then the native area was 7.7%. So Europeans, 51%, African, or excuse me, native reserves, 22%. And then it says native area. Even if you combine native area with native reserves, you get 30%. The Europeans get 51%. Were there twice as many Europeans? Well, of course not. Of, of course there were not. Uh, the first census we have is 1910. At that point, there were ooh, 20,000 Europeans, more than 20,000, 25, 26,000. And there were 750,000 Africans. So... 750,000 to 20,000. So that's, what, 30 times, 35 times more people using up half the land that the 20,000 Europeans were were getting. By the time 1950 happened, so that's 40 years of migration and immigration and because a lot of people move in, move out, go to South Africa, go back to England, move in, move out, da-da-da. Still, no matter what, the European population is growing. It gets all the way up to 140,000 by 1950. What was the African population by then, you ask? Well, it was over 2 million. So at no point, at no point uh, was the European population even close to being in proportion with the amount of land that they should have had. They were always getting way more land. Um and not only were they getting more land, so I, I wrote a note on one of my charts here. In 1914, there were 28,000 Europeans. That was 3% of the population. They controlled 75% of the productive land because the land of Zimbabwe was split into five regions. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. As you can probably guess, that's ordinal, meaning that the first region was the best, had the best rainfall, had the most arable land. It was the best for farming. Well, Guess where they put the Africans? They put them in regions four and five. That would be the last two regions. That was 80% of the population lived in those African reserves on regions four and five where prop production was difficult to say the least. The white population increased, as we've already covered. It increased every year from 1891 to 1969. It increased at different rates, but it increased. An example of what happens when the white population increases. Uh, when the white population increases is that Africans are displaced. For instance, in 1948, a record 17,000 Europeans moved in. That was a record number for immigrants. Now, obviously, population increases, not just immigrants, right? So you have to take into account birth rate, etc. But a record number of immigrants moved in, 17,000. How many Africans were displaced to make room for these 17,000 Europeans? 100,000. 100,000 Africans were replaced. So on a piece of land that could hold 100,000 Africans or was forced to hold 100,000 Africans, they were displaced so that 17,000 Europeans could move in. Okay, so 
that's the premise of chapter four. It doesn't stop there. That, so that's just like the 1930s to like 1940, 1950. In 1969, there's another act that's passed called the Land Tenure Act. And in this act, it's made a little bit better, but we're still not where it should be. But now the European area is 46% and the native area is 46% and the unassigned area is 7%, probably not very good land. Still, the Africans, when we last checked in what, 19, what did we have? We had that 1960, the Africans were 2 million people, the Europeans were 150,000, so that's 12 times the size. There's 12 times as many Africans at, at, at minimum. And, uh, and uh, they're controlling, you know, the same size amount of land and not the best land. And a lot of this land was left uncultivated some a lot of this i mean because again just the sheer amount of land that the european settlers have they couldn't cultivate it all they couldn't use it all so there's just great farmland that's not even being used that uh that the that the white settlers have control of while the africans are forced to use this you know not very good land another thing that happened during this time was um there'd be things like they would the africans would have too many cattle on the you know little bit of land they had, and cattle is important for a lot of different reasons in uh in in the cultures of Zimbabwe, but they were forced to sell them so that the land wouldn't get over overused, and of course they weren't selling them at a fair fair market value, so they would lose this cattle to the European settlers at a horrible rate. So that's one thing that happened. And another thing that happened was that the European settlers would use the land to, to grow tobacco and not to grow other crops. And then so uh, this was great during wartime. Like they, a bunch of people made a lot of money. But not so great when those things ended or when there was a drought. When war ended or and when there was a drought and then the land wasn't good for growing other things because it had been used to grow tobacco. This land issue is the thing. And, uh, and Lombo hits it with a ton of information. I just ran through, I mean, I'm out of breath because I just ran through it so much. But I just ran through a bunch of information there. But that is like the entire basis of his argument for why independence happened. And yes, he talks about other things other treatments that were going on in Zimbabwe that weren't right. But the thing that most people know about Zimbabwe is land redistribution. And now you can see why that land redistribution happened. Okay. To circle back to the beginning, my original question when I got this data set was to ask, why did the life expectancy jump up so high? In order to do that, I decided to read this book to give myself some context. After reading the book, I decided, well, what I need to know is what happened from the time the country was founded, the state of Rhodesia was founded, until the time the life expectancy dropped, which would have been like around the 60s or 70s or something, until the time that the life expectancy spiked, right? So that would make sense. Because uh, the lowest point for the life expectancy was like 44 years old. So my question is basically, how did it get to 44 years old? And then how did it get from 44 up to, I think it's like 60 something now. How did that happen? That's the question that I've set to ask. 
the guy, the columnist from the New Zimbabwe says it all happened because of Mugabe. He's the one who dropped the life expectancy down to 44 years old. So that's why I started with the land thing, because that answers how did we get Mugabe. So that's where I'm at now. I'm at how did we get Mugabe. We got Mugabe because the colonizers came in, colonized the country, and not only that, stole the land. Uh, I was going to say in an unprecedented way, but I don't know. They all still land. But anyway, that's how we got to Mugabe. So the next step is how did Mugabe run the life expectancy down. And that's what I'll be trying to answer in the next couple of chapters of this book. And then also I'm going to look at some other data sets uh, in the next two weeks. But before that happens, I found an interesting tidbit at the end of this chapter, something that made me think a little bit more. It said, African hospitals also suffered chronic overcrowding. For example, while there were approximately 280 doctors for the country's 232,422 whites, so this is sometime in the 60s or 70s now, there were only 850 doctors for 7 million Africans in 1978. So there you go, 1978. Similarly, life expectancy for Africans was 49.8 years, whereas for whites it was 66.9. Well, now, sir, we have ourselves a question. The life expectancy dipped under Mugabe. Is that because the life expectancy actually dipped, or is that because white people dipped, i.e. left the country, when they found out Mugabe was coming to power, taking with it all of their privilege and privileged life expectancy from living on better land, having better resources, having all the money, did that white flight account for some of the dip in life expectancy? That's what I would like to answer going forward, which fits in nicely with my other question. It's just another added uh, premise, facet of the hypothesis. So I'm sure that the different kinds of conflicts that were going on in Zimbabwe and the diseases and epidemics that happened there attributed to the life to the uh, dipping life expectancy. But I'm also curious to see how white flight contributed to the dip in life expectancy. And then also, how does it attribute to the gain in life expectancy? Because if, if after, especially if after the land was seized, life expectancy went up, does that mean that now that black folks, uh, Africans specifically, Zimbabweans even more specifically, now that they actually had land and access to land and the access to the ability to make some money, did they actually see an increase in life expectancy? Is that what happened? I'd like to answer all of these questions and hopefully this book will help me, you know, at least provide some context for it. And then I can get some information from some data sets and, and we'll see. We will see. But I'm on the case and I'll let you know in two weeks. Okay, and then the last thing, I know we're running late here, but just a couple more minutes, a little bits and bobs from the book itself, uh, things that I liked and just want to talk about really quick. The tables, figures, and maps are all fantastic. Like I said, most of the tables are all in chapter four. I mean, literally, there are so many tables. I reproduced some of them. You can check them out in the show notes. The timeline at the beginning of the book, which was reconstructed itself from a BBC timeline, is fantastic, and I reconstructed a bit of the timeline myself for 
uh, for a blog post I made. And then at also the beginning of the book, there's a list of notable people, which is very cool and will become more useful in the 20th century as we, as we read more about the 20th century political situation in Zimbabwe. Uh, we'll learn more about uh, the people and then we'll be able to go to the front of the book. And if we forget one person, have a notable, have a nice little index of people and we can look them up you know, rather quickly. Uh, the only other note I have for the book is the sources are a bit interesting. So like I said, that timeline is taken from the BBC and I think it's credited to like the BBC online. There's a, there's a number of sources that are from the internet and it's, of course, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting in an academic source, how many things are coming from the, in an academic book, how many, uh, sources are from the internet. And I think it speaks to the dearth of, uh, books written by Zimbabwe, uh, written by Zimbabwe, written by Africans or written by Zimbabweans in English that, uh, that the professor felt comfortable using because there's certainly been a number of things written about Zimbabwe by people who have an agenda to push. And I guess, you know, obviously everybody who writes history has an agenda to push, but uh, I think that the dominant agenda that has been pushed, like the one um, put forward by our Oxford professor that I quoted earlier there, uh, I think that is the kind of agenda that, Professor Mlambo was trying to avoid uh, was trying to avoid reproducing. So I assume that he used the sources that actually, um, you know, had more in, in in his opinion an objective view of Zimbabwe. But um, anyway, a, a lot of those sources were from the internet. So so that was also interesting. Okay, we are going to run up to the 45-minute mark, so we will cut it here. We will be back in two weeks with chapters, probably just chapter five, to be to be honest. Even if I, even if I uh, read more chapters, there's just so much in each one of these. And now that we're getting into the modern history, it'll be really well documented and be dense. So probably we'll just do chapter five by itself, and that'll probably be in two weeks, maybe in one week, depending. But yeah, school year's starting up, so maybe maybe every two weeks, going back to every two weeks for the podcast. But yes, and so if you want to read about uh, my little findings here, and also I didn't include the other two books that I read in this, in this uh, podcast, but if you want some notes from those, you can go into the show notes, check out those links, check out the links to my other writings. The intro and outro music is by The Keep Running, so you can check them out, notes in the... In the uh, links in the uh, show notes as well and yeah that will do it for this week please follow on soundcloud pocketcast spotify gonna put these on youtube eventually so follow on that too and then until next time stay safe stay black and keep reading this time enough at last That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>